and you know, it's I, I can't believe we are where we are with respect to this. So let's just jump into this. Here we it's go. Unbelievable, really. Okay. It really is. It, I mean, seriously, you're, you're talking about the, the the greatest existential threat to face humankind in our history, which is our own destruction. The only thing that might be um, uh, on par is the mutually assured destruction that we hold potentially with nuclear weapons. But that takes the precipitation of one act and a chain of events to happen very quickly at one time. This is us doing it to ourselves and getting to a place where we're not going to be able to stop it. It's like, well, there you have it. Yeah. It's like It's like a giant snowball rolling down a very gradual slope gathering steam and momentum and mass as it goes. Right. And we're all standing there going, oh. Look at that. Isn't right. that interesting? It might get here in 10 minutes. Let's just stand here and watch it come. Yeah, yeah. And at some point, it's like in the cartoon where the snowball is just filled with everything in the town. You know, there's people sticking out and buildings right. sticking out and, you know, <laughs> yes. so cars. It's like everything has been consumed by the snowball. So. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know what I think I'm going to get? Well, let's just, I'll put this in, in the beginning. Because um, that, that what we did right there is great. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so right now we are joined by uh, one of my favorite scientists. Love to watch her speak. And um, she is an atmospheric scientist and professor uh of political science at texas tech university where she is the director of the climate science center she is also the ceo of the consulting firm atmos research and consulting and all of that notwithstanding she is a profoundly talented science communicator a combination so rare that unicorns search for it so i am uh, delighted and excited to have with us Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, how are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. Oh, without a doubt. So I have to say that, um, you know, immediately I thought of you when I, we were going to do this pop-up podcast for Climate Week because you have uh, an extremely um, disarming style of approaching and broaching this subject because you strike a balanced chord that removes condemnation and invites the attention of the listener. Whereas most of us in this space who understand that the science is settled, that this thing is happening, that it's real, our approach is, hey, dumbass, what's your problem, dumbass? Don't you see what's happening? You big dump, right? So <laughs> can you speak to that a little bit? First of all, how did that come about? I know you're Canadian. Is it just because we are Americans and we're a bunch of a-holes? I mean, what is, what, what is happening, Catherine, that makes you so good at this? I, I have certainly had my moments of thinking and feeling exactly that. So if you're someone who's, who's worried about climate change, you can't believe the state of the world and who gets angry and frustrated and scared about it, you are not alone. In fact, last year, climate crisis was the word of the year, according to the Oxford Dictionary. But the runner-up word was actually eco-anxiety. 
people who are getting increasingly stressed and worried about this. And when we're stressed and worried, we tend to react with anger and frustration. But our brains don't react well to fear and guilt-based messages. If we feel like there's nothing we can do about them personally, we tend to just dig in our heels. We tend to reject what we're hearing and we tend to harden even further into our pre-existing stance. Wow. So all of this bombarding people with negative information and then turning that into fear and guilt-based messaging, it isn't only not productive, it's actually counterproductive. Mm -hmm. It makes the situation even worse than it was before we started. Absolutely. So as a climate scientist, I certainly have my feelings about this too, but I really want to be constructive and productive. I want to fix this thing. I don't want to prove that I'm right and somebody else is wrong. I actually want to make a difference. And so, so there you have it. It's, it's, it's not drawing lines, picking sides, winning an argument. It's about achieving, from what I'm hearing from you, mm -hmm. I may be wrong, achieving a commonality, a common ground. Yes. Hey, man, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you right here. Yes. I'm, not, I'm not even going to ask you to come over here. I'm going to meet you right there. I like that common ground. And that's exactly what you have to do. So if you're going to have a constructive conversation, it has to begin with something you agree on, not something you disagree on. So when someone posts something on Facebook that just makes the lava bubble up to your eyeballs, that mm -hmm. is not the time to respond to have something constructive. Uh oh, wait a minute. Let me see if I can get rid of this last post. Wait a minute. No. <laughs> All right. Yeah, get rid of that first. <laughs> so figure out what it is that we have in common that we share because if we're both humans living on this planet, if we're connected to each other and we know each other in some way, mm -hmm. whether it's through our job or our profession or the place that we live or our family or a sport or activity that we do enjoy or a shared faith or we're both Rotary Club members, figure out what we have in common and then meet the person on that sh common ground and then connect the dots to why if you're that type of person, climate change matters to you. Because the biggest problem we have is not that people don't agree with 150 years of science. That's how long we've known that climate is changing and humans are responsible. All right, we're gonna have to get to that, but go ahead, finish okay. that thought. Yes, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we don't think it matters to us personally, and we don't think there's anything we can do to fix it. So those are the two most important things we have to talk about, and we begin that by meeting on common ground. Awesome. God, I love the way you make this so clear and simple. And then I try to repeat it and I end up just going, listen, dumbass. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. So here's, here's the two things I'd like to do. First, I'm, uh, uh, three things, because we're going to do three things right in this row. Uh, the last of which I want you to clarify this 150-year-old climate science uh, statement that you just made because it's a great thing for people to know you know that's number that's number one which will be number three so the first thing I'd like to do simple definition because so far you're so great at breaking stuff down give me a simple definition where I can start I'm just you know sitting here I'm having some coffee at the counter I, I reach over hey man did you know and then I'm going to give the most simple definition of climate crisis because first of all, let me just say this. See the shirt I'm wearing? It says NH3C now. H3C is human caused climate crisis. H and then three C's. And the reason I call it that is because it'll stick in somebody's mind. 
because climate change and climate crisis are two different things and people tend to get confused when, when we, we conflate, conflate them. them. Climate change causes climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So NH3C, it sounds kind of cool. You know, I like yeah. it. <laughs> I was wondering, I saw it on your shirt. Yeah. I didn't see what came below. I was like, what is that? I'm sure yes. you can tell me. Yes, human okay. cause climate crisis, and clearly I need to change my camera angle because you can't see the bottom of the shirt. Yes, now I can see it. Can see it. <laughs> All right, so give me a give me a simple example of how I can convey to somebody what is human cause climate crisis. Well, climate crisis or climate emergency, I should say, was the word of the year last year. Like I said, right. And the best definition is this: it's a threat multiplier. Hold up, I'm taking notes. Go ahead. Okay. If threat multiplier, which threat multiplier. that's a military term, by the way. It comes from the military. Yes. And I think it is the perfect way to describe this because if the only thing that was happening was that the planet was getting two or three or four degrees warmer and that was all that was happening, nothing else, right? would it be a crisis or an emergency? Would we even care? No, we wouldn't care. Right. We care about it because it's affecting everything else we already care about today. It's affecting our health. It's affecting our water, our food, our energy, the air that we breathe. It's affecting all of our infrastructure. I know that's kind of a long word, but that's our cities, our buildings, our roads, everything like that. It's affecting you if you live along sea level with rising sea levels, with stronger hurricanes, wildfires are burning greater and greater area. Climate change is affecting all of our lives today and it's a threat multiplier. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. Second simple definition. What causes this? It is humans today. Now, of course, climate has changed. Oh, let, taking notes. Oh, you, okay. you made a very, very subtle and prolific point just then. It is humans today. Yes. Go ahead. Please go ahead. Oh, yes. this is good stuff. Humans so, today, go ahead. If you add up all the objections people have, the sciencey sounding objections, the number one objection by far is it's been warmer before. Number one objection. And then if people wanna be a little humorous, they'll be like, oh, so you're saying that humans are causing it to be warmer at the time of the dinosaurs, ha ha ha. And you're like, right. oh, I've heard that joke already twice this week. Right. <laughs> so we know that it's been warmer before because we climate scientists are the ones who study that. Gotcha. And in fact, I would venture to say more of us study natural changes than human changes because they're just more complicated and more interesting. Okay. We know that changes in energy from the sun, that the ice age cycles due to changes in the Earth's orbit, that volcanic eruptions have all affected the Earth's temperature in the past. But we know that today, according to natural factors, that Earth's temperature should be getting cooler today. Very, very slowly, very slowly, very gradually getting cooler. And instead it's not, it's getting warmer faster and faster. So how much of that warming is human caused? All of it and then some. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm, no, no, no. But I'm just saying, finally, a, a definitive, a definitive statement and declaration. Someone declares how much? All of it. That and more. 
And that that is so necessary to be able, I'm sorry, I just got way too excited. But, <laughs> but it's so necessary to be able to say, like, without equivocation, everything that's happening right now, it's us, buddy. It's what we're doing. Oh, that is wonderful. Yep. So um, let's just talk about belief and let's talk about the brain and belief. Okay, so right now there are about 14% of people, which is kind of less than half than it used to be, about 14% of people who say, sorry, this is a hoax, um, this is BS. I, what is going on that makes us believe? As a neuroscientist, I'm asking you, um, what, what is belief to a neuroscientist? You know, well, what's interesting is that belief looks the same in the brain. And there's some interesting studies around this. Like, for instance, they look at um, people who are religious, who have religious beliefs, and people who are atheists, right? And okay. they, in this experiment, they looked at what their brain activation while they give them various statements. Um, and one is, you know, Jesus is born of a virgin, right? And the religious person will say, yes, I believe they get activation of a part of their brain called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. That Can you re repeat that just for the nerds out there? Oh, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Nice. Go ahead. Yes. So ventral, like up front in the middle. Anyway, so they get the activation, but the, the non-believer doesn't get activation that part of the brain. And they say, I don't believe that. But then if you say, you know, um, the earth you know spins on the on, its, on an axis or you know some some scientific fact you give them okay, that right. they say yes i you know they can't really see it they can't really you know but they know it as a fact then they get activation of the ventral medial prefrontal cortex so no matter what the belief and whether it's valid or not it looks the same in the brain when a person believes in something wow then the, yeah that sounds dangerous <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead continue so the problem that well the issue then becomes why do people believe in the things that they believe like when you ultimately when you believe it looks the same in the brain but why should i believe in this piece of data let's call it versus this other um and that's more psychological why people are motivated to believe in certain things so let's say if it comes to climate change they're all that say we say that 14 percent of people who right. don't you know believe in the science or the facts they might be motivated to believe otherwise. And oh. that's more psychological, right? And then those, those reasons can vary. I don't think it's one size fits all, but um, some people, you know, maybe they think they're gonna have to pay higher taxes or, you know, or it has to do with their political affiliation. And so they're motivated in different ways to, to um, kind of discount the science and to kind of, it's almost like a self-deception and create reasons why they should believe otherwise. So they truly believe it. Wow. So, I mean, so that means that we are all, if the, if the belief looks the same in everybody and the motivations are what cause that actual light up, that means that we are all susceptible to self-deception that is so strong that it is indeed a truth. What we are looking at is 
to us an objective truth. Is is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay, you just taught me something and that and by, <laughs> you just taught me something and let me just say this. What you just taught me scares the bejesus out of me <laughs> because that that explains a lot. So let's let's talk about for just a second adjacent to that, adjacent to that because that's horrifying. Um, but at the same time, fascinating because that's the way our brains work. Um, I often hear it said that, you know, our brains are not nearly as advanced as our technology. Um, like we're basically a bunch of cavemen with technological, highly technological toys. Um, first of all, is that true? And secondly, how would that relate to the way we accept information uh, when it comes to something uh, like a threat of climate? Yeah, I mean, I often say that, you know, we're like, um, yeah, these cavemen brains operating in the modern world. And, and there's a whole field of, of evolutionary psychology, which basically says that every psychiatric illness has to do with this mismatch between these evolutionarily older programs that our brains are still running on um, colliding with modern society. So for example, if you take something like um, a, a fear of heights, right? Like that would right. be adaptive, right? In the caveman world, like you don't want to fall off the cliff. It would make sense to have some anxiety and step back. But yeah, because I, I, I got a feeling that back in caveman times, pretty much like now, they didn't have universal health care. <laughs> yeah, we're still, in some ways, we're still in caveman times. Well, but my, my point being, my point being, if you fell off a cliff or fell out of a tree and broke a bone, like the chances of you dying from that would be huge. Right. So it so, makes sense to have a fear of heights at some level, you know, to protect yourself. But evolution works a bit slower in terms of our biological evolution than our technological advances. And so even, for example, standing on the 33rd floor of a building, looking out the window, you might consciously know there's no real threat here. I mean, you know, no immediate threat, but those same instincts might kick in and you look down and you'll get a feeling in your stomach and a pit and, you know, this kind of fear, this deep seated fear of heights because yeah. it was adapted for so many years that just this, you know, small little tidbit in terms of our evolutionary history of modern culture, it just, it, it, it has, our brains have not caught up. So we do have these old programs that are running and, but we also have the capacity at some level to override them with our prefrontal cortex. Okay. Um, but that, that takes work. That doesn't okay. come naturally. So now how would this kind of caveman brain, you know, affect how we process information about something like climate or does it is, I mean, or is it really not that much, that big of a deal? You know, I think we're still operating. So, so I think in general, humans have a more myopic perspective. You know, we're looking at the immediate things right in front of us. Mm -hmm. Um, and our brains operate with, I want either immediate pleasure or avoidance of pain, right? Okay, I want both. I'm going both and here, okay? Okay, I, you can have both. Yeah, I want both and, okay, go ahead. Okay. So that's fine, and that makes sense, again, evolutionarily, adaptively to, you know, run from immediate danger or eat that sweet right in front of you. But it's a bit harder to, and we're one of the only animals that can really think about the future consequences of our actions, right? Okay, right. Other animals don't even have things like anxiety. They have fear, but the anxiety is the 
fear of a future threat. You have to be able to look into the future. And humans are unique in that way because of our very large prefrontal cortex. Um, but it's much harder to withhold having immediate pleasure um, for some future long-term consequence that it's only a visualization at this point. Uh -huh. So we are again running on these programs. And so because climate change in many ways is abstract, if it's not, if I'm sitting here, you know, in my room, in my home, and I'm not immediately impacted by it, you know, I'm going to be more aware of like, oh, I have to do my laundry than what's going to happen in 50 years from now. So our brains have evolved for in, in this way, and it's very hard to override that. Like looking past our immediate, we're very nearsighted in, in many ways. So it's funny you say that. Daniel Gilbert of Harvard, I'm sure you know who he is, because um, mm -hmm. all you guys know each other. Um, <laughs> I think he's uh, done some commercials about happiness or something. I've seen yeah, he actually, he actually yeah, has. I, yeah, yeah. yeah I know. But um, he says that we have evolved to respond to pain, that P, you know, and uh, personal, like threats must be personal. And then they have to involve an abrupt change to our environment. And then they have to have some type of like immorality or that type of judgment attached to it so that we're offended um, and that it has to happen now. The occurrence must be happening now. And sure. other than that, you know, we're kind of like, I'm good. You know, I, right. I, I, yeah. I'm all right. So, I mean, so, so really, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that, that also speaks to the immediacy of what motivates us. What motivates us are things that affect us personally that are happening right now, you know, that are in our immediate world. Um, right. But what were you going to ask? I was going to say, so, I mean, when you, if this is the actual wiring of our brain, it's not a deficiency, it is just what it is, um, how do we, is there a way to change that wiring? Making the choices, okay, making a, let's say, a, a, an environmentally conscious choice or a pro-climate choice, making those choices easier for people. So. People want, you know, our default is like a lowest energy state, if you think of that. When we even, you know, you look at chemistry and their electrons, they want to be in their lowest energy state, right? And so do people. So tell me about it. I gotta, <laughs> you kidding me? I'm surprised. I'm not wearing pants, Heather. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah. Well, speaking of lowest energy. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. I never stand up from this chair, so no one will ever know. <laughs> um, but I so I think like if, let's say, I mean, for example, you're choosing a car and if a Tesla is less expensive and you get better miles or whatever than a, a, a gas guzzling car, it makes the choice easier for the person. It makes it more convenient. And so we have to try to figure out ways to make these sort of individual choices that they would naturally make, not because it's, I'm going to make the, the harder, you know, pro climate, however you want to phrase that choice, but we have to make that, that would be their natural inclination. So yeah. it's almost like, again, you're not changing the wiring of the brain, but you're, you're trying to create an environment in which the decisions that people make naturally will be better for the environment. When you talk about seeing this as a threat, all right, now we see the disaster porn on TV constantly. Now, about two and three Americans think that global warming is affecting the weather, okay? And about half of that, actually think like in, the, in those two and three Americans, half of those people 
believe that the last wildfires, not this one, the last wildfires in California, uh, that they were basically global warming was a part of that. Uh, 50% of people, because that's the disaster porn that gets played on TV all the time, um, they believe that uh, hurricanes are made worse by a climate crisis or a climate change. Okay. With all this disaster porn that we see all the time, how is it that people can still look that right in the eye and still say, eh, I don't need to do anything? Well, they can, people can interpret those events in different ways, right? So it's, it's sort of, you know, we have this confirmation bias where we kind of want to see the world, like we have a, a belief and then we look at the facts that support that belief and we kind of ignore or throw away the things that don't coincide with our belief or we take facts and we twist them so that they will fit in with our sort of schema of the world. And so you can take those same things and explain them away. Oh, there's always been, you know, the, the, climate, the weather goes through cycles and some years there are worse hurricanes than others. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that there's climate change. You know, you just look at the same bits of information and they can be interpreted in two different ways because that's what our brains do. They are not a one-to-one -one correlation with reality. We all see the world in slightly different ways. We all interpret the actual facts, even phys physical things. We have visual illusions. We have auditory um, illusions. So it makes sense that different people based on their belief system are interpreting this data, let's call it, this information in different ways. Wow. Um, so there's nothing to be afraid of for, for okay. them. So you mentioned confirmation bias and like you said, it's you take the information and you make it fit what you already believe. Right. Um, so I just heard about this or read about it uh, a couple weeks ago and it was in uh, whatever, I don't know what I was reading, but um, I sound like Donald Trump right now. I don't know what I was reading. <laughs> you were reading? No. A lot, uh, exactly. <laughs> Uh, here, I'll just put it in, a, in the most scientific way possible. A lot of people say, no. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm making jokes. These are jokes. I don't want to offend anybody because I don't want somebody going, you know what, you guys, blah, 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 and you hate mm -hmm. whatever, and that's not the right. case. But I heard about this optimism bias. And mm -hmm. so what does, because it's, it's kind of like what you just explained. It's like somebody looks at you and says, you know what? I'm going to kill you and I'm going to eat your children. And then your response to that is, oh my God, my children are delicious. Is that what you're saying? Like, that's, right. it's crazy. So what, what is the optimism bias? Optimism bias, how does that play in? Well, I mean, it's another one of these sort of evolutionarily adaptive um, biases that we have where some people are, we on average actually tend to be overly optimistic. We think bad things can't really happen to us. And there's a whole theory about depression and depressed people who have a sort of more negative bias. They used to say, you know, they have a negative bias, but, but that actually they're, they have a, a closer sense of the real risks and reality. They actually just don't have that optimism bias. So they have a, a more realistic view of probabilities of things happening to them and, and in the world. Um, but it makes sense to have that bias, to keep an optimistic outlook on life so that you don't give up easily, you know, you keep enduring in the face of adversity. 
Um, and so that can work for us, but can also work against us in certain things. I mean, again, I liken it to COVID. A lot of the same mechanisms are at play here, you know, where people think, oh, I, well, I can't get, to, you know, I see all these people dying on TV and whatever, but that's not going to happen to me and my family, you know, until it does. And then you often see people saying, oh, I thought it could never happen, but now I want to tell everybody to beware. But that still doesn't affect the other people who don't think it can happen to them. So it plays out in a number of ways. And again, it's one of those things where it's very hard to override our human instincts to actually just get a realistic assessment of what are the risks and how should I be responding um, as a consequence of those risks. You just explained how I got uh, gonorrhea in college. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on, that was funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway, is it worth trying to get to people on an individual basis? Is it worth it to the brain from a neuroscientist standpoint? Is it worth it? Yes, and I think, and here's why. Um, I think that it's all in the messaging. So I don't know if it will help turn people who are very motivated and very stuck in their beliefs at the far end of the other side, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a whole spectrum of people, you know, in between. And sometimes a message is just either too dry and they tune it out or they feel like they're being lectured to or, you know, they don't want to hear all this fear talk and they just tune it out. And so one way into a certain segment of people, again, it's not all people, it's not, and, and it's not gonna work for everyone, is, is through storytelling, through emotion, right? When people feel emotionally engaged and connected, first of all, you remember things better, but you're more likely to listen, you're more likely to pay attention. And, and I think entertainment, the entertainment industry, whether it's you know film, comedy, music, um, any kind of art form really is more of a direct route, I think, into people's um, emotional space, you know? So mm -hmm. I do think it's helpful for a certain um, segment of people who maybe are closed off to other types of messaging. Apollo's Arrow, which is coming out on October 27th, uh, profound and enduring impact of the coronavirus on the way we live. Um, you, you, you told me earlier off camera um, about uh, what, I, what I feel is um, something people do not really connect when it comes to COVID and climate. So can you, can you kind of make that connection for us? Yeah, well, there are a couple of ways in which these two complex problems that we're facing are interconnected. One has to do with that, that, uh, that over the last 30 or 40 years, so, so most of the epidemic diseases we've had, new epidemic diseases we've had in the last 40 or 50 years, including, for example, HIV, mm -hmm. uh, or the 1957 influenza pandemic, or the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, or the current coronavirus pandemic, or Ebola, or uh, St. Louis encephalitis and so on, lots of these so-called emergent diseases are what are known as enzootic. That is to say, they come from animals. They're, they're, they're pathogens that live in animals. And then at some point due to human-animal contact, they leak to us. Like right. with the coronavirus, it was a bat where some human had an interaction with a bat. You don't know the details exactly. 
November in China of 2019, some, some you know, unobserved chance infinitesimal event, this pathogen leapt from a bat to a human, and then millions of people are dying a few months later. So, so this is a big impact of a small thing, you know? But anyway, so these, 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 these new diseases that we're facing, including the current pandemic, arise in part because there's more contact between humans and animals. And this is related to climate change. As, as people migrate, as the climate changes, people are encroaching on the terrain of animals, and animals, as their climate changes, are encroaching on our terrain. So you have more human-animal contact with strange animals. I'm not talking about our long domesticated animals, which, um, which uh, because of climate change, that is interconnected then with this uh, coronavirus and other similar pandemics. So I think that's part of the way they're connected. That's a pragmatic way. But there's a second way, uh, which, um, you know, as you said, we had discussed a little bit, which they're inter interconnected, is, um, is conceptually. In a way, you can think of the coronavirus as a complex problem that's playing out over a very short time horizon. So we just are finishing the first wave. We're going to have a second and probably third and maybe even a fourth wave of this pandemic over the next two or three or four years as the as this virus just sweeps through the human population. And, and all respiratory pandemics for 100 years have had these waves. It's just what they do. Uh, and and we, are, we are seeing how the world responds to scientific evidence and what the consequences of ignoring scientific evidence are in short time horizons. So if, you, if someone says masks don't matter, which is wrong. Wait, let me, let me just say that for you the way you should say it. Mask don't matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if someone says that to you and you listen to them, your chances of death and your loved one's chances of death have gone up. And you will learn very quickly that that was not correct advice. Or someone says to you, take, you know, uh, that, a, that a vaccine is coming very soon. Wait, let me, let me just say it for you the way it's supposed to be saying. You know, there's a very special day, very special. We may see a vaccine by that special day. I have a Hallmark card waiting for that. That's that's. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And by any, I listen. If you're listening right now and you're offended, I'm I'm only making fun. I'm having a little fun. Go ahead. Sorry, Doc. No, but the point is, you're right. I think I think I think it's objectively the case that the federal government's response and this delete and the, I think it's. A, completely necessary and appropriate to hold the White House responsible has been abysmal. And, um, and I think that it's been highly irresponsible. The um, statements that we know the president was briefed in early January. I mean, the president has the best epidemiologists and the best intelligence service in the world available. We know the president was briefed about the seriousness of the epidemic and every expert epidemiologist. By January 24th, I knew it was going to be a serious pandemic. So I, I have to believe the President of the United States has better access to information than I do. And so, um, so, uh, so you know, all the statements that it's going to go away and it's nothing were completely, you know, incorrect. I was going to finish. So anyway, the point is, I think uh, I wasn't specifically in, originally starting this part of our conversation. I wasn't specifically thinking of the President. No. But, but now that you pointed it out, I think it is quite legitimate and fair to hold them entirely responsible for the incompetent response of our nation, the lack of testing, the inconsistent messaging, the, uh, the, 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 the joking about masks, which are known to be crucial. And it's not just, you don't just wear a mask to help protect yourself, you wear it right. to protect others. 
But here's the point. If people uh, see that other people are not wearing masks, it reduces the probability that they will wear a mask. And conversely, if they see that other people are wearing masks, it's like a fashion, it increases the probability. In a way, we're all in this together. We have to kind of take this action together. So when you ignore the science and the pandemic, let's say about wearing a mask, then you quickly learn, oh my God, that was wrong. I should have paid attention to whatever it is that they were saying, leaving aside the issue that early on the scientists themselves were not, some scientists were not being as consistent as they should be. The point is that with a, with a, with a catastrophe that's gonna play out over four years, we get very immediate feedback on the consequences of our behaviors. Climate change, which is gonna play out over 40 years, we don't get that immediate feedback. So science is saying, the glaciers are melting. Here's a photograph. This is what they were before, this is what they are now. We have more hurricanes. We have uh, crop yields are changing. Uh, people, a million people are being displaced due to flooding more than the previous year in this country or that country. The whole nation's in the Pacific, the sea water is rising and they can't, they have, their homeland is disappearing. You, you see these things, but they play out over longer time horizons, so it's easier to ignore. So I think one of the things that's gonna happen with COVID is it's gonna give us an object lesson on how as a nation to respond to complex problems that perhaps if we're lucky, we will learn some good lessons from it about factual, uh, rational policy debate based on facts with collective action that may, those features may also benefit our response to climate change. Oh my goodness, I can only hope that you are 100% correct. Um, you know, you are a doctor uh, and a medical doctor as well, which means that, you know, you're a person who uh, looks at humanity differently than a comedian. Uh, you look to save lives. I look at lives like they're a bunch of dumbasses. So... <laughs> 